at two of these verses, which we read last week, but I want to look at again this week. Verses 28 and 29, these, these two nuclear verses. I mean, they're just like a nuclear reactor buried in this little book, buried between Hosea and Amos, but which are so, so significant in the history of God's purpose of redemption. So verses 28 and 29 of Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions on on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we've said it so many times already this morning, but we bow before you to honor you as king, thanking you that you have come, and that as you have come, you have brought these days of which Joel wrote. We praise you and thank you that these are the days of the Spirit. And I ask you this morning that you would grant your Spirit, Lord Jesus, so that we might understand your Word and understand its implications for our lives and for us together as a church. What a blessed thing this is for us to contemplate, Lord Jesus. Would you help us as we do it? We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. My guess is uh, that just about everybody here, just about everybody here, has had two names on his or her mind over the last 48 hours. Can you kind of guess what they might be if we took a poll? Just maybe Gustav and Sarah. I don't know about you, but those are two names. Gustav, who is now, it's interesting to refer to these forces of nature with personal names. Gustav, who is now a Category 4 hurricane, churning his way across the Gulf of Mexico, it seems taking dead aim at New Orleans. Now, it's, it's wonderful to be in Florida and to feel a sense of relief that Gustav is not rolling his way up the Florida peninsula like a bowling ball down a bowling lane. But it's hard to feel a sense of relief, isn't it, when you realize that this massive monster storm, which is growing in intensity and maybe a Category 5 hurricane by the time it makes landfall, is going to wreak all kinds of destruction and havoc on the Gulf Coast. It's, it's hard to feel relief about that. And I trust, you know, I was praying this morning, God, send, and I don't know how these things work, but I was praying this morning, God, send, send one of those Arctic, you know, air flows from way up in the street and knock the top off of this storm to quiet it down. I don't know if that's possible, or, or at least 
somehow diminish it by some other means. I mean, it's hard to feel relief when you see this thing headed for Texas or Louisiana or Mississippi or wherever it's going to go and know that it's just going to make a mess of an area that was devastated three years ago, four years ago, three years ago. So there's one name. I hope you'll pray and pray for the people of the Gulf Coast and for God's sovereign intervention. And then who is Sarah Palin? To go from the frightening to the completely mysterious. Who is Sarah Palin? First term governor of Alaska in her second year as governor? If elected along with John McCain, 72-year-old John McCain, which for some of us doesn't seem that old, which for some of us seems pretty young. But 72-year-old John McCain, one heartbeat away from the Oval Office, who in the world is Sarah Palin? Now, point is, with Gustav and Sarah dominating the headlines, it's real tough for Joel to get a word in edgewise. But the word that Joel gets in edgewise is of infinitely greater significance to you and me than Gustav and Sarah. Um, I, just, I just have to give you a brief lesson in how I think about the scriptures when I come to the scriptures, and it's this, and I don't have time to unpack it or expand it. Maybe I'll talk about it a little bit tonight, so if you want to know more, come this evening. There's a hook. No text of Scripture stands in isolation from the rest of Scripture, and every text of Scripture has to be understood in the context of the whole unfolding story and drama and purpose of God for the whole of history. And if you think about a text of Scripture as the point of a triangle, the whole of the rest of Scripture rests upon it. And really and truly and legitimately, you can start at any point in the Scripture and you can wend your way through the whole of the rest of Scripture because it's all tied together. It's one story describing one great purpose. And no matter how detached a particular text might seem to be from the rest, they're all connected. And what I suggested to you last week is that this text of Scripture serves as something of a hinge, and it directs us in both directions from its particular location in history. It directs us back to Genesis 11 and to the confusion of the languages and all of the enmities and hostilities that result from God's having confused the languages as an act of judgment upon an arrogant and rebellious people, and it directs us ahead to the day of Pentecost where Joel is fulfilled, according to Peter's understanding, Peter, who on that first Pentecost cites Joel and cites the experience of Pentecost as the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Pentecost, a place where the languages are still present, but where the people are no longer divided. And all of the divisions and enmities and animosities are overcome, and they are overcome by the power of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. That's what happens at Pentecost. And what flows out of this incredible work of the Holy Spirit 
this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit is any number of things, but three of which I want to suggest to you this morning. One we're going to look at in detail this week, and it so frequently happens by the end of the week, we're going to have to put off the other two till next week. So there's another hook for you to come back and hear the rest of the story. So what does this all represent for us? What does this outpouring of the Spirit mean for us? Well, in the first place, it means that you and I, as Christians, have simply an amazing, remarkable identity, a stunning identity. And it means that we have as well a sustaining hope. That's what we'll get to next week. And then it means, as you probably could easily conclude from what we've said so far, it means that we have been incorporated into a new family, a marvelous, marvelous, wonderfully diverse, gloriously colorful family. Where the kinds of things that used to obtain in relationships among the peoples no longer obtain. They're gone. And the implications of that are simply huge. But first of all, we have a new identity. That's the first thing that comes at us out of this text. And I want you to notice simply as you look at this, the simple word all The promise of Joel chapter 2 is that God would pour out his spirit. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, it isn't just the case that he has reversed the curse of the confusion of the languages that occurred at Genesis 11. But he has accomplished something remarkably significant for you and me. He has poured out his spirit upon all flesh and has given his people a new identity as people of the Spirit. Now, if you're a Jew living at the time of Joel, or if you're a Jew in a synagogue living sometime after the time of Joel, and you're hearing the prophet Joel read, the language of Joel 2.28 is really going to be stunning for you. It's going to be mysterious and perplexing, and it's going to be stunning. And the reason that it's going to be stunning is because up until this promise and then its fulfillment at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was, if you will, the Spirit of God was poured out only on prophets and priests and kings. Now you can trace this through the Old Testament. You can see the connection in Joel chapter 2 between the outpouring of the Spirit and prophetic functions. What is it that is said will happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh? Well, what will happen when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh is remarkably that old men and young men Children, sons and daughters, and even servants, male and female servants, will themselves engage in what it is that prophets do. 
Now, what do prophets do? Now, we, we tend to have a, a kind of a skewed view of what prophets do or what prophets did because of the newspapers that we see when we go to the grocery store and we stand in line at public Publix and we read or we used to read about Gene Dixon or we used to hear about Nostradamus or we used to hear about other people who claim to have the ability to peer into the future and see things that you and I can't see. And so they warn us of things and prepare us for things and tell us about stuff that we can't see and can't know about. Foretelling. Foretelling the future. Now, Old Testament prophets had the ability to do that. The prophecies of the Old Testament are full of foretelling, foretelling all kinds of things from events that would occur to Israelites, things that would come to pass in their day and time, and more significantly, foretelling things that would occur way down the corridors of history that would be fulfilled principally in Jesus Christ and then by virtue of their connection to Jesus Christ fulfilled in the people of Christ as well. And you can read the prophet Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Those prophets and all the other prophets are full of that kind of stuff. A lot of those things we read during the Advent season. Passages from Isaiah that promise that a child will be born, that a son will be given, that he'll receive authority and power and the ability to govern, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And you know that fulfillment in the person of Christ. In the gospel narratives. That's one of the things the prophets did. They did that. But honestly, that is only a piece of what their greater purpose was. Not just foretelling, but forthtelling. The prophets were those who were entrusted with the word of God. They were the means by which the eternal God conveyed his will to his people. And here's something, I've mentioned this before, but it's something maybe to reflect on and camp on a bit. That happened on both sides of the fall. It happened on both sides of the fall. So that Adam really is the first prophet. Because Adam receives the will of God, the word of God, specific instruction about how he's to conduct himself and how he's to live in this garden, this place that God has made for him and for Eve and for all of their progeny to inhabit. He was the first prophet receiving the word of God that his life might be governed according to the will and mind of God. And that's what the prophets do down across the whole of Old Testament history. You see the union of this, the union of the spirit of God with the prophetic office most clearly in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach, to herald, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The prophet is the one upon whom the Spirit of God rests, the one who receives the word of God. The prophet in Israel is a kind of incarnation of what happened in the creation. When the speech of God and the Spirit of God come together, and when they come together, powerful things begin to happen. Order replaces chaos. Fullness fills up the emptiness. Light drives away the darkness. That's what happens 
when the Spirit of God and the Word of God come together. And that was a living reality for the people of Israel across the centuries of their existence. And so there's the union of Word and Spirit in the prophetic office. And here, Joel is telling us, God is promising to Israel that the day is going to come when the Spirit will be poured out, not just upon an Elijah, not just upon an Elisha, not just upon an Abraham, not just upon a Moses, not just upon a Habakkuk or a Nahum, but I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. What's the significance of that? The significance of that is that you and I, we all together, while recognizing the distinctions that there are in the church, differences of calling, some of us called to do this kind of thing that I'm doing here this morning or trying to do here this morning. Some of us are called to do this. Others of us are called to do other things. But we all together have been entrusted as prophets and prophetesses and commissioned to herald and proclaim these things to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's a remarkable thing. Paul refers to us in his Corinthian correspondence as co-laborers with God. Co-laborers with God in what? In heralding, in announcing, in proclaiming the coming of the King who comes to exert his rule and reign into the whole of the world with the result that at the end of time, everything is renewed and restored and renovated. That's something we're going to look at more fully next week. But that's who we are and that's what we do. Prophets and prophetesses who have been entrusted with the word and upon whom the spirit has been poured out proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's pleasure. But it isn't just prophets who were anointed. So were priests. It isn't just prophets who experienced this pouring out of the Spirit. But the priests did as well. If you read Leviticus 8, verses 1 and following, it is there that Aaron, having been set apart is anointed with oil. He is anointed with oil, symbolizing the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then he is robed as the high priest. Go back and read Leviticus 8 and following. This is, this is wonderfully rich stuff. Having been anointed with oil, he is then clothed in the righteous robes of the high priest. And a part of his clothing is this breastplate with the 12 stones, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. And Aaron, then the great high priest, having been anointed with the Holy Spirit, having been clothed in priestly robes, goes into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, there to perform his priestly work, his priestly function offering worship and praise to God in behalf of the people and interceding before God in behalf of the people. So if you're listening to Joel or if you're listening to Joel being read some decades or centuries farther down the course of redemptive history, 
And you hear that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, on young men, on old men, on sons and daughters, on male and female servants. All of this imagery of the prophet and of the priest has to come into your mind. And you think, how can this be? How can this be? There is only one priest who is given access into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, there to offer worship and praise to God and there to make intercession for the people of God. How can this be? It's simply stunning, simply amazing. And yet Peter understands that because of Christ and because of what Christ has done, Christ who is the prophet, the word of God incarnate, Christ who is the great high priest who comes into the world to offer the sacrifice and to be the sacrifice who then by his resurrection and ascension enters into the holy place there to remain forever. Peter understands that when he, Jesus, goes there, he doesn't go by himself. He doesn't go alone. He takes you with him. He takes you as priests and priestesses. Those who by his blood and righteousness are given access into the very presence of the Father. You who along with Jesus are anointed by the Spirit without measure. The Spirit not being sprinkled in the way that blood was sprinkled on the altar or on the Ark of the Covenant, but the Spirit who is poured out an effusion of Christ's Spirit poured out upon His church. That's who you are. Priestesses and priests of the risen Christ and Peter, again, captures this and gets it and understands it. First Peter 2.9, he calls those people who were reading his letter a royal priesthood. It isn't just that they have a royal priest. They are a royal priesthood. Dead in Christ, alive in Christ, risen in Christ, ascended in Christ, behind the veil with Christ, in the very presence of the Father who has loved you with an everlasting love and who has given you Christ to be your Savior, Redeemer, and friend and the one on whose back you go into the presence of Jesus, there to do what priests do, offer worship to the one true God and make intercession with Jesus, your great high priest, in behalf of his people. Look at Exodus 19.6. Don't turn there now. Just make a note of it and read it this afternoon. And you'll see when you do that this was God's original purpose from the very beginning. It was his original purpose to have a kingdom of priests. And that is what you are. And still there's more. 
It isn't just prophets. It isn't just priests who were anointed, who were connected to the Spirit. But it was also kings, prophets and priests and kings. And and if you're in the audience listening to Joel preach, or if you're hearing this book read, you think, my goodness, it's prophets who experienced the Spirit. It's priests who were anointed. And it's kings who were anointed with the Spirit. 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 16, Saul and David anointed, symbolizing, anointed by Samuel. This is important. Anointed by Samuel, symbolizing the fact that the king lived under the authority of the word of God, which was received through the prophet of God. It's the prophet who anoints the king, but the king is anointed. Anointed by oil, with oil, again symbolizing that under the rule and authority of God, the king is empowered to press out, to work out, to give realization to the rule and reign of the great king. That's what kings were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to do their own stuff, their own bidding, think up their own ideas. They were to live under the authority of the word of God before a sovereign Lord of the universe and through their ruling and reigning over their people, the righteousness and compassion and justice and goodness of the kingdom was exerted through them out into the people and from the people out into the world. That's the calculus of kingly authority in Israel. They're not free agents. They're not freelancers out doing what they think they ought to do, think they ought to be. But living under the authority of the word of God, they are empowered to give expression to the righteous rule of God in the midst of the world. And given what Christ has done in the whole trajectory of what you see in the scriptures and the connection that there is between the two, what God purposes to do, what he brings to completion in Christ, and then the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, upon the people of God. It is not just that we are prophets and priests. It is that the church of Jesus Christ is princes and princesses united to King Jesus and through whom He is exerting his rule and his reign out into the midst of the world. Paul reminds the Corinthians of this. I mean, you know, you hear these things and you think, wait a minute. How does this work? I look around me. I don't see prophets, priests, and kings. I see the Andrades and Graven Goods and Shablums and and other kinds of folk, prophets, priests, and kings. I see, I see a guy in a black robe with red crosses on his head. Prophets, priests, and kings? What is this? Well, Paul reminds the Corinthians, who were a greater mess than we are. And we're a mess. But I think by the grace of God, we're less a mess than the Corinthians were. The Corinthians were a mess in every respect. And the Apostle Paul reminds them, 1 Corinthians 6.2, Don't you know that you, saints, will judge the world? 
Who passes judgment on the nations? The king, the king of glory. Joel is full of that. The next verses and chapter are full of that. Bring the nations down into Jezreel and I will enter into judgment with them. And yet Paul reminds those messy Corinthians that by virtue of their union with Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they will sit with him upon thrones of judgment and they, with their king, King Jesus, will judge the nations. Wow. Prophets, priests, kings, united to Jesus, the great prophet, United to Jesus, the great priest. United to Jesus, the great king. Paul can say to Timothy, in the last letter he ever wrote, can say to Timothy, Timothy, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Reign with Christ. Seated upon thrones. Ruling alongside Jesus. Jesus who comes, I, I don't know, I just love this stuff. I mean, I think this stuff is so cool. Jesus who comes as the second Adam to do as the second Adam what the first Adam failed to do. The first Adam received the word of God and rebelled against it. The first Adam was placed in a garden in the original temple, the place where the presence of God is pleased to dwell, but turned away from God who is the source of all of his joy and all of his hope and all of his delight, turned away from the God before whom he was to offer the totality of his life as a sacrifice of worship and praise. Turned away in rebellion against that great God. And Adam, who was made a king over the whole of the creation, ruling in the place of God as his vice-regent, used that power, that authority given to him by God in an act of rebellion that plunged him and you and me into the misery that we live with every day. And so what does Christ do? What does Jesus do? Jesus comes as the second Adam to fulfill the original responsibilities of the first Adam as the prophet who not only receives the word of God but is the word of God incarnate. As the priest who not only offers the sacrifice but is himself the sacrifice. And as the king who having done that is risen and is now at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and exerting that rule and reign through his prophets, his priests, and his kings. And that's us. That is the church. That is the identity that we have. Now, again, I look around me, you look around you, and you say, how can these things be true? How is this possible? Well, let me just share with you a story. Um, I learned this story this last week. I listened to a sermon. You know, preachers, no preacher is original. They all have to read books and listen to s sermons and, 
and get stories and insights and all of that kind of stuff. Solomon said it. I mean, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Why should I pretend that there's something new with me? I listened to this sermon this last week, and it was a powerful, powerful sermon describing and illustrating so wonderfully well what is going on right now with you and with me. I shared this this last Friday at the refuge. The German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, who was born the end of the 19th century died in the early part of the 20th century, made a trip to Italy, and in his excursion to Italy, visited a grave, and it was the grave of some Italian nobleman. And this Italian nobleman, who had been buried centuries before, was buried with an acorn. He didn't know it, of course, because he was dead, and those who buried him didn't realize what had happened because I guess they weren't paying attention or didn't care when they saw the acorn fall into the tomb. But when they had finally buried this guy, entombed him, put him in his sarcophagus, they put over his tomb a massive piece of marble. Now, this is hundred years before, hundreds of years before Rilke makes his visit to Italy. And what happened? is that that little acorn germinated. And it began to sink its roots deeply into the soil surrounding that grave. And as it drew those nutrients, it began to grow and enlarge and expand. And it sent up its central shoot. Its central shoot that managed to find a little crack or crevice or hole or something in that piece of marble and connected to that piece of marble. And over the decades and the generations and the centuries, it cracked that piece of marble. And as it cracked that piece of marble, and as the oak tree began to grow, it separated the two halves of that thick piece of marble. So that by the time Rilke got there, there wasn't one piece of marble. There were two pieces of marble caused by a little seed planted in the ground, relentless, relentless in its pursuit of life and growth. It would not be deterred. And folks, what has happened to you this morning, if you are a Christian, is that seed of life has been planted in you. And it is relentless. And while you don't feel much like a prophet or feel much like a priest or look much like a king, something has been planted in you and in me and in the church that is relentless, that will not be stopped, and it will come to full flower. And this gospel seed that has been planted which has made you prophets and priests and kings under the authority and rule and reign of the great prophet, priest, and king. That seed will give birth to this massive tree. Remember the mustard seed? Smallest seed of the garden becomes the biggest of the bushes in the garden. And all of the birds of the air and all of the beasts of the field Find a place to live and dwell and be kept from the heat of the day in its branches and in its shade. It's easy to see Gustav and Sarah 
it is hard to see that you are prophets and priests and kings with a purpose of speaking, of worshiping, of making intercession, of ruling under the authority of your King Jesus so that the world feels the difference. That's who we are. And that's what's going on. And that's what will lead ultimately to what we will look at next week. This sustaining hope that the day is coming when what Christ has started will be finished and will result in the entire renovation and restoration of the whole cosmos. Nothing will stop this gospel life from fulfilling its ultimate purpose, the renovation of the heavens and the earth. You and I as prophet, priest, and king in the kingdom of King Jesus are partners with him before Almighty God in the work of extending those glorious realities out into the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please, by your Spirit, the same Spirit who has given the word, the same Spirit who anointed prophets and priests and kings, the same spirit who came upon you in power, anointing you as the greater prophet, priest, and king, the same spirit who was poured out upon the church, who has regenerated each of us, who has given us new life, who empowers and enables us. Lord Jesus, by the same spirit, would you enable us to see these things and understand these things and have these things form and shape who and what we are for this moment in this world's history. Lord, may this life, this gospel life, be as relentless in us as the image of that acorn. Be with us, we pray, Lord Jesus, to the end that your kingdom is extended, that you are glorified, and that at the end of the day, the whole heaven and the whole earth are renovated to reflect your great glory. We ask in your name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing a hymn of praise. All praise to God who reigns above, number four. All praise to God who reigns above.